one of the uh, great privileges of pastoring a church with an abundance of young, energetic families is that you never want for uh, questions. People going through raising children always have lots of questions for you, lots of things going on. One of the challenges is in, the, in vacation season, there's lots of traveling that goes on. And people move around. And as we go through books of the Bible especially, it gets difficult in the summertime to keep everybody in the same place because everybody's all over the place. But we are going to continue in the summer to go through Ephesians. And we had a problem um, a couple weeks ago with the website, and we corrected that now, I'm right, Steve, and we're up to date. So even when you're traveling, when you're gone, I'd encourage you uh, to listen to the sermons. They're available free. You can download them, listen to them, and that'll keep you kind of in the flow of what's going on while you've been away and keep you right where we are. We're in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're in verses 14 today through 16, and I entitled this sermon, A Reason to Pray. And we won't get to all of the reason to pray today, we'll begin that. Today we're going to actually just cover the introduction of the prayer. And if you were with us some weeks ago, as we were in verse 1, you, you, you might remember that we said, Paul begins verse 1 with an introduction of the prayer. For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles. And it's as if when he gets to the word Gentile, his mind kind of flips over to the grand nature of the church. Did you realize that the church is the greatest organic, living, created thing in all of the earth? It is the only thing which is alive, both on the earth and right now in heaven. It is the only thing that is created that will exist without any interruption from this age into the next age. We were singing there on Amazing Grace. Uh, when the earth shall dissolve like snow, and the sun forbear to shine. There's a great misunderstanding, maybe we'll get there uh, in some days, about how the world will come to an end. There is the thought, and it's pretty prevalent, that in the end, there's going to be the church gone, sinners here, these great tribulation period, and then Jesus returns again to set up a kingdom. What Peter describes for us is nothing like that. What Peter describes for us is that the world will continue like in the days of Noah. And then God will bring judgment on the earth. And when He brings judgment, not with water this time, but with a purifying, refining fire, like the water washed away the indecent sin of the world and those who had carried out that sin. Remember, in Noah's day, all the world was sinful. Noah was saved by grace, not because he was a good man. He was saved by grace. He was gathered by God's plan of redemption into the ark with his family and the animals. And he was spared from the flood. He was redeemed out of the flood. He, he in his nature, deserved the flood, but he didn't get it. What a picture of God's grace. And Peter says, drawing on that, the end of the world will be just like that. When that flood water came, it washed away all of the wicked people. And only the righteous in Christ were still there when the flood was over. I, I know it's unpopular in our day, but you want to be left behind. 
You do not want to be taken. If you're taken, you're judged. Jesus taught us that in the Olivet Discourse. There'll be two in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. There'll be on the roof, there'll be two. And then one will be gone and one will be left. In the Old Testament, the picture of being left is a picture of blessing to the people of God. Those carried away are carried away in judgment. And so Peter says at the end, when God judges things and brings all things to right, what, what the hymn writer means by the world will dissolve is not that the natural world will not exist, but rather all of the impurities and the sins of this life will be gone and a new earth and a new heaven will appear. A beautiful paradise where we will live with God and He will live with us. And we will dwell in a physical body redeemed, perfect, glorified with Him in this new heaven and new earth. There's a lot of misconception about what's going to happen at the end. And I don't want you to be confused. I want you to understand the church is not going to be taken out of the world, but rather is going to be kept by God and brought into a paradise world. A beautiful, perfect world, sinless world. And all sin and all mockers and foolish ones will be swept away by the judgment of God. Just like in Noah's day. Now that's as simple as the Bible can put it. It is not confusing. And our passage really relates to that. You say, what does that have to relate? Because Paul says, for this reason I pray. I'm praying for you in verse 1. I'm praying for you. Now, he then describes who he's praying for. The Gentiles... In the church at Ephesus. Why is he singling out these Gentiles? Because they, unlike the Jews, did not have the history of the Old Testament. To understand that God has kept His Word to His people. And so He's telling them, just like He's kept His Word throughout time, He's going to keep His Word to you Gentiles. And what He's so wrapped up in is the church. He's saying, this is more grand than I could have ever imagined. Paul was a good Jew. Paul was a great, a righteous Jew. In Philippians chapter 3, he points out the fact that he, according to the law, was blameless. That he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. That he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He took, in his previous life, great pride in the fact that he understood the Old Testament. He knew the law and he was expecting that God would bring the world to Jerusalem to worship like Jews through the ceremony of the law. And the Messiah is their king. In Jerusalem. He celebrated that. He believed that. And what happens in Ephesians chapter 3, our uh, focus is, what is he praying for? He's praying because he is now wrapped up in the fact that in my previous life I was wrong. I didn't understand. I missed it. The great message of the Old Testament is not that the whole world will worship like Jews, but that the world will be saved. Those who are saved will be saved through Christ, grafted into this bride, this church, this beautiful collection of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And they will be brought to Christ to worship Christ. And he says, I'm assuming, that's why he broke the prayer. For this reason I pray, for the church at Ephesus, you Gentiles. And he says, now assuming you know what I'm teaching to you, you see. This great mystery, which wasn't so obvious to the people of old, but now it's been made obvious to us. It's no longer a secret. It's no longer hidden. Christ now has revealed to us all of the summation of the ages. And that is the church is being saved by Him. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. 
It's all being brought together into the church. That's why I say the church is the greatest living organism in all of creation. It is the most varied, the most spectacular, the most amazing entity in all of the world. And it's not just a nation, it is a holy nation. It's not just a priesthood, it's a holy and royal priesthood. It doesn't just have a king, but now, because of him, the king, they, the church will rule and reign with him. What a beautiful picture of who the church is and what the church is. And so Paul, when he begins to pray in verse 1, gets wrapped up like many preachers do on this idea of the church. And he goes into a parenthesis from verse 2 to verse 13. You know those feelings, don't you? Those parentheses pastors have. They say things like, now to end the sermon, and then they put a parenthesis. They really mean they've got three more points to make. And then the end. But they said the end. And it's like Paul, when he started praying, he said, For this reason I'm praying for the church at Ephesus, you Gentiles. And then his mind, when he, it's like he said, Oh, this is glorious. I need to expand this. I need to push this. But in verse 14, he comes right back to his prayer. Because like any good preacher, though he may chase a rabbit, a holy rabbit in this case, an intentional rabbit, a spirit-filled rabbit, but it's still a rabbit a little, he comes right back to where he was. Look what he says in verse 14. Same words, right? For this reason. You see, now he's back on his first train of thought, his prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named the great living organism. The church. That according to the riches of His glory. And that, that's really as far as we're going today. We're going to stop right there. Because after that, He gets into some very specific things. And we're going to cover those in the weeks to come. But we can't get there today in the time we have. So I want to say to you, first of all, I want to ask the question, why does Paul pray? Why, why, as a matter of fact, why should you pray? Why should I pray? That's a great question among people like us, isn't it? If God is sovereign, and if God has made all things. And if God is carrying out His perfect will and His preordained plan, why pray? Well, I would continue you and Paul would continue you and the Holy Spirit would say to you, we, those who believe in the sovereignty of God and those who believe that God is sovereignly working out His plan, we are the only ones who really can pray. Everyone else is begging. We're not begging. We're not coming like paupers to beg. We're coming as children to a father. And what we're saying, just like my children do, listen, my children ask me for things. Do your children ask you for things? Some of you, you got your children are grown. Do they still ask you for things? I'm just wondering. That's a real question. Mine are all still young. No, they do. I see a lot of heads. So it never goes away. They still ask. Why do they ask you? That's, a, that, that's the same thing. To ask the question, why should I pray, is to ask the question, why should I ask my daddy to do anything for me? Is it because you don't think he will do it? Is it because you think he doesn't know to do it? Is it because you don't trust your daddy? Is that why you ask him? No. Children ask their fathers to help them because they know their father will help them. Because they know their father is wiser than them. Because they know their Father has the resources to help them. Because they know their Father loves them and is gracious and merciful towards them. Because they know their fathers and they trust their fathers that they won't do the things they shouldn't do for them. We hope. We're not good fathers. 
all the time. Sometimes we do what we know we shouldn't do. We spoil and do all these things that are really aren't good. But God doesn't do that. So the, the human analogy is not perfect. We fail as fathers. But the human analogy is enough to say, why should we pray? Well, let me turn the question around. Why do you ask your daddy to help you? Not because... And, and, and you know what? I've asked my dad things in life that I know my dad already planned to do. Give you an example. Almost without fail, my children, who are old enough, come to me or their mother every day and say, in some form or fashion, are we having supper? At the Weathers household, just in case they've said something to you, we do not abuse our children. They have eaten supper every day of their life. So in their minds, listen, they know that their father and mother are going to give them something to eat. They trust it. But they still ask. Now, because I'm a sinner, I get pestered by that. But really, it's a good analogy of prayer. I go to God often saying, God, in this situation, please do this. I know He's going to do it. I have confidence in it. But it's a relationship that I want. It's, a, it's, that, it's that intimacy that I desire. And that my Father in Heaven desires. And when we're talking... To, and so what's my answer to my children? When, on a good day, my answer is, absolutely, buddy, we're going to eat. We eat every day, don't we? Yeah, yeah, what are we having? Now we have a conversation. You know? And sometimes he, he or she, whichever's coming, they'll, they'll complain about what we're eating. That's a lot like my prayer life. God says in His Word, this is what I'm going to do. I say, I don't like that. Let's do another plan. You know? But He continues on, and I continue to pray, and in time, what happens? The will is molded to the plan. And God is carrying out what He desires to carry out. So when you ask why pray, you can turn it right around and say, why do you even ask your parents for anything? Well, because you trust them, you know them, you see their character. And you want to talk with them, you want a relationship with them. And Paul prays like this. Very simply, Paul prays to his Father. Why does Paul pray? Because Paul trusts God's eternal plan. That's why he prays. I don't know the plan, but my father knows the plan. So I'm going to pray to him. And he shows that he trusts that plan in chapter 1. All of chapter 1, really, is a statement that is for this reason, I bow my knee. What reason? Because God has an eternal plan. I know God has an eternal plan, and I know he's carrying that plan out. Therefore, I need him to carry the plan out, and I need to know. I need, I need to ask. I need to seek. I need to knock. Jesus gives those commands, doesn't he? That's what Paul's doing. When he's praying for the church, do you not think that he knows that God is going to strengthen them? Sure he knows it. Why does he pray it? Because he trusts the character of God. He knows that God will carry it out. He's talking to God. He's having a relationship, and it's a real relationship. And this eternal plan stretches beyond time. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That confidence allows Him to pray. When I said earlier that those who believe in the sovereignty of God are those who pray, only ones really that pray, or we could say those who pray best, I can show you the example of it. It's simple. J.I. Packer used the example in his great book, The Sovereignty of God and Prayer, where he taught in, in evangelism, where he talks about prayer. And he says in the book, when we pray for people to be saved, do we pray like this, God, 
My desire is for Bob to be saved. But God, I don't want you to violate him in any way. Please do not change his heart. Please do not send anyone to talk to him. God, allow just coincidence to take over. Random chance. We desire that he would perfectly make decisions according to his natural mind and heart. Is that how we pray? Nobody in the world prays that way. When we love Bob, this is how we pray. Oh God, God of heaven and earth, change Bob. Take out his hard, sinful heart and give him a heart that loves you. Please God, send your spirit. Please God, would you help me have the words from your word to say? Would you help a neighbor to contact Bob? Would you send a church to help him? He needs you. Oh God, do something for Bob. Even if you have to take his health or take his wealth or whatever you have to do, bring him to yourself. That's how we pray, isn't it? And not just us, but the whole world prays that way. That The real Christian world prays that way. That's how they pray. And so it's because of the trust of God's eternal plan that people pray. If you didn't think God had a plan, why would you pray? Just figure it out on your own. Just just do it in your own strength. Don't ask God for anything. But that's not the attitude of the Bible. Why does Paul pray? Because he knows God has an eternal plan and he trusts God to carry that plan out. And he shows us in Ephesians chapter 1. God also has a plan for the church, and Paul knows this. So when he turns from praying for lost men to praying in our text for the church, he prays to the one who has planned and put together and organized and called and equipped and gifted his people. He prays to him. Why would he pray to talk to anyone else about the church? I'm guilty of not praying enough. I don't know. Is anybody else in that boat? Yeah. We do. Why? Because we trust ourselves. Or we trust another human. And so when we have a question, we don't go to God. We go to another person. And we say, hey, could you... Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with getting advice or wisdom or help from others. But have you ever thought, why do I go to that person before I go to God? I haven't even prayed about this. But I want to go talk to this other person. What's going on? Paul, my contention would be Paul, prayed before he ever talked to anybody about anything. Why? Because he knew God had a plan. And he knows God has a specific plan for the church. So when he turned to praying for his congregations, he went to God, the one who created the church, and he prays to him. It is a submission thing. It is a sovereignty thing that calls him to pray. So that's the why. What we pray, this is a great thought uh, from uh, Ligon Duncan. What we pray reveals where our heart is. He is focused. What we pray reveals where our heart is focused. I'm guilty of not praying enough. I'm also guilty of praying wrongly. I don't know if you've ever been there. But a lot of times my heart is focused on all the wrong things. I'm really not concerned with my spiritual growth, my family's spiritual growth, or this church's spiritual growth. I want easy I want comfort. I want safety. I want health. You know, we fuss a lot about the health, wealth, and the prosperity gospel that gets preached. And then we turn right around and live it ourselves. And you see it in our prayer. It's all about God giving us something physical. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying 
about physical things. But where the focus of our prayer is, is where our heart is. So, Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, if you notice, said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed, lifted high, be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He hasn't asked for anything physical yet. Give us this day our daily bread. He said, oh, there's the physical. Yes, in part, but the word of God is also bread, isn't it? So I think Jesus has more than just physical intended there. I think he does intend physical bread, but I think he also intends spiritual bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the way our Lord taught his men to pray. Is the focus on my physical comfort and safety in life? Or is the focus on how great God is? How great our need is spiritually? Of the request and the petitions made in the Lord's Prayer, only one of them, only one of them is physical physical bread, and even that one has a spiritual meaning. And so we see the great focus of Paul's prayer is not that the Ephesians would be comfortable, that they would have all their physical needs met, and let's don't go off thinking there wasn't anything to pray about in that, in that regard. We remember the world Paul lived in, don't we? It wasn't affluent like ours. So there's plenty of things he could have prayed for. Remember where he's praying from. He's praying from prison. So there's plenty he could be praying about. But his focus is not on things. His focus is on a person. And that person is first God, his eternal plan, and the eternal plan for the church, the great plan for the church. His heart is with God. His heart is not with himself and with this world. His heart is with God's people, not that they be physically blessed, but that their spiritual well-being and their spiritual growth be pressed forward. That's why he prayed. So I ask you, why do you pray? I know I'm being very pointed, and I mean to be. Why do you pray? Why do I pray? What's the focus of our heart? And I pray that it becomes more like Paul's. I pray that we will see the need to pray like him. To whom does God, I mean, to whom does Paul pray? Well, look in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. He prays to the Father. He prays to the Father. His focus is on the fact that his Father's bounty of grace and love will flow over onto the church. The posture in his prayer is important. And we, we overlook things like this, but I, I want to draw your attention quickly to it. Look what it says. For this reason, I bow my knee. Now, that may not seem strange in our culture that we talk about bowing the knee. But in his culture, bowing the knee was a very significant gesture. When the Hebrew people prayed, customarily, they stood. Look at when Jesus talks about people praying in the temple. They stand. They stand and they pray. Even greater, their posture was not closed eyes and bowed head. When they prayed, their arms were lifted, their eyes were focused towards heaven. 
standing, head up, hands up. This is how they prayed. Now, Paul in this prayer is talking about bowing the knee. There are significant places in the Old Testament where people bow the knee. There are significant places where people actually lay out on the ground, put their face into the dirt, and cry out to God. It's times when people are earnest in prayer. When people are broken over a situation. When people are deeply bothered or concerned. Their posture is not this. Which was reverent. Which was worshipful. Which was acknowledging God's height. His magnificence. His glory. It was an acknowledgement. That's what they're doing. But in these moments of bowed prayer where they lay out before God, it's an earnest gesture. They're, they're begging and pleading with God. I picture Paul in his jail cell laid out, head down, onto the ground, crying, weeping tears for the church. God, if you don't give them a picture, a glimpse of who you are and your great love and grace, the bounty of it, they will not, they will not be strengthened. If you don't help them, God, see his earnestness is coming out as a pastor. He loves his people. I, I didn't ask this pastor for this and permission. If he listens, I hope he forgives me. One of my good friends in the ministry, as you know, is Bob St. John. And it is not rare for me to go to Bob's place over at Anston Bible Church. And to no secretaries there, and so I just go on back. And we have that kind of relationship. And as I approach his study door to knock, to see Bob, prostrate before the Lord, praying, pleading, not for himself, not for his family, but for the church. The power of any ministry and the power of any life lived for God's glory is wrapped up in prayer. Not just any prayer, but a prostrate, broken call and plead to God. Bowing the knee. Not just in some gesture, some ritual, but my heart is bowed before you, Lord. I'm broken before you. If you don't do it, I can't do it. I'm powerless without you. He is in a prison cell, unable to affect the people he's ministering to. One of the great uh, missionaries... Andrew Murray used to say in his circuit of his churches, when he would go from church to church, he found often the churches that were doing the best were the ones he wasn't physically there with. It really began to bother him. He got self-conscious about it. It seemed like churches would be growing that he had planted or his men had planted and he would go visit and it would just kind of stall out. And then all these other churches would take off and they'd need him. So he'd go over there and then after he'd been there a little while, he would just kind of peter out. It'd just kind of stall out. And the other ones would start growing. He was thinking, is it me? You know, do I need to go home? Am I ineffective? And then it hit him one day in prayer. As he was praying over this event, he began to realize it was the churches that he wasn't with that he prayed the most earnestly for. When he was present, he depended on himself. When he wasn't there, he begged God to do it. And so what he began to see is that God was doing the work. Isn't that significant? God was doing the work. And he was in the way. And so from that time, his, his patterns changed. He began to beg and plead for God to have blessing over all the churches, even the ones he was at. And I can understand that. That happens to me here often. I confess it. Often I pray for my home church, for my friends' churches, much more earnestly than I do my own church. And it's a sin on my part. I pray that you won't fall into that trap. 
Don't ever stop praying for Grace Fellowship. Don't ever stop praying for your pastors. Don't ever stop pleading with God to send His Spirit on this place and work here in a significant way for His glory. Paul was praying because he trusted God's plan, because he knew God had a plan for the church. His heart was focused on God and His glory and sovereignty. This is why he prayed, God, give us out of the bounty of Your love and mercy Your great blessing. He was praying to His Father with a bowed knee, with a bowed knee and a bowed heart, he prayed to his father. Not to just a faraway king or God, but to his father. Personal relationship. But I also want to say his father, not just his father, but look what it says. I'm praying to my father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, I, I feel, I think, as I've studied and I've prayed over this, a real... A real burden to say to you, what he's communicating here is that God is the great vast nature of the church. When Paul says he is given a name, you see, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Some mistakenly, I think, think that's talking about a general love for the whole world. When in reality what he's saying is he's praying to the Father who has given his name. To the families of the earth. And he did it very specifically in his son Jesus Christ. Now, it would take some time. But what we could do is go back to the Old Testament and see that when God was intimate with a person, he often changed their name. One example, the most obvious, Jacob. Jacob the usurper, you remember? The one who was a deceiver from birth. When God broke his hip and brought him to repentance, he changed his name. What did he change his name to? Israel. Right? Israel. Is there anything significant about that name? Absolutely. It means the prince of God. He gave in the name Israel, in the Hebrew, he gave him, he gave Jacob his own name, El. He gave him his own name. The significant thing about the change of name is not that he exalted Jacob, but that he exalted his own name through Jacob. I will give my promised blessing to Abraham through one son, the only son, Jacob. Isaac, then Jacob. Not Esau, Jacob. But he won't be called Jacob anymore. He'll be called God's prince. It was God emphasizing his name. So when Paul says... Him praying to my Father, and He's the Father from whom the church, I would say, the church has gained its name through Jesus Christ. And that church comes from every family on the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every people on the face of the earth have members of this great family. This was a great change in Paul's theology. When he came to Christ, he moved from an Israel-centric, Jewish-centric faith to a Christ-centric faith. He moved from a glorification of the physical to a glorification of the spiritual regeneration which would bring about physical regeneration in Christ. He moved from a glorification of a city, the city of Zion, the mountain of God, Jerusalem. He moved to the glorification of the church, the body of Christ, the Zion we're being called to, 
the family, he began to exalt this eth- this ethnically diverse body God was building in Jesus. It was a great change in his theology. You have to understand, the full revelation of God is not contained prior to Christ. It's progressively coming, but in Christ we find the fullness. So that's why I've encouraged you several months now, and I'm going to say it again. When you read your Bible, be careful how you read. There's only one certain God to the Old Testament. It's the New Testament. If you try to interpret the New Testament by the Old Testament, you will fail. What you will come out with is a very physical, this world-centered, Israel-centered, Jewish-centered theology. What we do is we read back to the Old Testament through Christ. And what happens is the light of Christ shines on the Old Testament. So that the meaning that's already in the Old Testament, we're not reading meaning into it, it becomes obvious now. The shadows go away in the light of Christ. If you go the other way, you will cast the shadow back over the light. And it will only confuse, murky the water for you. So I encourage you as a pastor, and as one who loves you, read the Bible Christ-centered. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. It's not pointing to moralism. It's not pointing to any other thing, any other entity, but Christ primarily and His church. That's where we're headed. That's the glorious new creation we're headed to. So Paul says, for this reason. Why? Because God eternally planned for the church to pour out the bounty of His love and grace. Whom does He pray to? His Father. His Father who has given His name through Christ to the whole church. Every tribe and tongue and nation is represented in this body. How does Paul pray? With a bowed knee and a bowed heart. Humbly, broken, earnestly. And finally, the focus of Paul's prayer is the glory of God. Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of His glory. And we're going to stop there for the morning. The riches of His glory. Listen, I want your confidence to be in God. When you pray, you are praying to an all-glorious, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-righteous, all-just, all-loving, all-merciful, all-gracious. You getting the point? You're praying to the God of heaven and earth. And as you bow your knee to Him, the focus of your heart, if it is anything but Him and His glory, you need to be realigned. Your focus needs to be turned. The greatest anecdote to pessimism is a focus on the glory of God. If your focus is anywhere but the glory of God, you can't help but have a pessimistic view of this world. So none of it makes sense in its own way. People die, people get sick, the economy's crashing, jobs are being lost, families are being broken, nations are warring, there's earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes, destruction everywhere we look. If your focus is that, even in prayer, if that's your focus, don't expect to rise up with a countenance that is lifted. Expect to rise up pessimistic. Expect to have no hope. 
But when you bow the knee before the all-sovereign God of heaven and earth, and you lift His name above all things, and your prayers focused on His glory and His glory alone, it doesn't change the things that are happening. It changes you. So that as you look at the things that are happening, you see God working. You don't see random chaos. One example. I've uh, been keeping track on my own for some time now of my prayers. And when the tsunami happened in Japan, I remember journaling as best I could. God, you obviously have a plan. I don't know why this has happened. But you obviously have a plan. But I'll admit to you, when I journaled it, I'm not sure I believed it. I mean, I said it. I wanted to believe it. I knew it was true, but I'm not certain in my, the depths of my heart I really grasped it and was really possessed by this statement about God's glory and His sovereignty. As I watched the newsreel and as you have watched the videos that have come, I mean, it was devastating. Whole lives being washed away. Weeks passed and all that was talked about was devastation. How it was impacting the global economy. How the nuclear meltdown could happen. The great nuclear meltdown. A country that was nuclearly destroyed by nuclear bombs in World War II could go through another nuclear holocaust. I mean, that was the focus of the world. And I confess to you, my prayers became more about that than about God. And then God gave gentle rebuke. As I was reading the blog of Desiring God, a testimony appeared one morning of a young lady who had left Bethlehem Baptist Church couple of years back, had gone back to her homeland in Japan. She had gone with a team of people, and they were ministering in the area that was hit hardest by the tsunami. Her report back to Bethlehem during that destruction was much different than my understanding. See, I had gotten off track. I began to focus on the sadness and the brokenness and the worldliness of it. And here she is living through it, and her focus is the glory of God. As she wrote back to her church in Minnesota, I was moved, broken, convicted. Why? Her statement was, I don't want you to worry for me. I'm safe. God has opened a great door for ministry. The area most affected by the tsunami contains the largest percentage of Christians in the country. There's only a half a percent of Christians in the country. But most of them live on the coast affected by the tsunami. We've been displaced. We've been dispersed. But we are not without hope. Our focus is on Christ and we are ministering to our neighbors. We are loving them with the love God has given to us. And we see a wide door for the gospel. Pray that He will reap a harvest. When I read her prayer and her heart, I thought, I have such a sinful heart. I don't believe what I say I believe. I want to believe it. I want to live it, but I'm still struggling. So w- when we walk away this morning, and, and there'll be a lot, there'll be three or four more Sundays on the prayer, okay? We'll get to some specifics, but I just want you to be wrapped up with this. God's glorious, sovereign plan for the world is uninterrupted by my sin or the fallenness of this world. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. One thing that pleases Him is when His children come. They come in broken,
prayerful, bowed hearts and minds. And they cry out to Him that He pour out from His great bounty, love and grace, through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the church. This is the beauty of the New Testament. This is the beauty of God's Word. This is the glorious truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let's pray together.